The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. So I've been talking about the um, Four Noble Truths and last week started talking about the Eightfold Path. So I thought I'd continue, just continue this conversation um, with uh, a little bit of, a, of an overview of the Eightfold Path again, but mostly focusing on the first aspect of the Eightfold Path, right view. <clears throat> so the Eightfold Path is the, the Buddhist prescription, essentially, for dealing with the... Um, the suffering in our lives with dealing with the the way that we struggle, the way that we um, habitually orient our lives in a way that actually doesn't, we think it's going to make us happy, we think it's going to head us in the right direction, but it tends to just keep us on this loop of similar patterns, similar habits, things that we do over and over again that we we think, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep doing this? And we just end up um, in a kind of a struggle with our lives. So the Eightfold Path is the Buddhist prescription of what can we do to kind of change the direction, to reorient our ourselves. So the Eightfold Path being uh, eight components, eight essentially eight practices that we engage with Right view, wise view, wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So the um, wise view beginning the path, this is the traditional order, the traditional way that the path is, is described, that we begin with some kind of understanding or some kind of wisdom. Essentially, what the Buddha starts us with is basically, you know, he says, okay, well, we typically think that we're going to find happiness by getting what we want or having what we want. That was, that's what will make us happy. If I can just get what I want, that's what will make me happy. And he says, this is, you know, kind of heading us in the wrong direction. And so right view is kind of about reorienting ourselves, heading us in a different direction. So this, um, this view that he proposes is essentially the view of the Four Noble Truths. That by recognizing what actually causes our struggles, what actually causes our suffering, which is if we begin to investigate that the, uh, the practice of getting what we want and having what we want there can be a little happiness that comes from that. We can get a little hit of satisfaction, a feeling of control, a feeling of rightness that comes when we get something that we want. And yet, um, that fades after a while. We, 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 it loses its allure. If it's a material thing, perhaps, it loses its allure. Or something else happens and... It's like, well, that thing doesn't quite do it for me anymore. And so we're, we're back 
kind of stuck in this, well, well, what's the next thing that I can get and have that'll make me happy? And that's, that's, we think that's the best it can get. It's like, this is as good as it gets. Getting what I want will make me happy. And we even kind of realize that this thing that I'm working so hard to get will only make me happy for a little while. But then, well, when that kind of fades out or something else happens, then I'll do what I need to do to get the next thing. And we don't really see that it's this, this cycle that is um, no, actually part of the, the issue. That it's actually this endless wanting something to be other than it is that is the, uh, the root of our struggles. So the reorientation the Buddha talks about is around shifting our view that what will, what will lead us to happiness isn't getting what I want, but the letting go of that wanting. The settling in with things as they are. Now, not to say that we're not going to take action, but things have arisen in a certain way. Something's happened in our lives, right? There's something that's going on. And if, if we're resisting that thing that's already happening, if we're resisting the thing that's already happening, then we're going to be suffering. Now, that's not to say that we wouldn't necessarily take some action to do something. But the, if the action is coming out of that resistance, if it's coming out of a sense of I need to have something or I have to get rid of this thing, then that very um, craving, that very uh, wanting things to be other than they are is a great source of our struggles. So this, the Buddha kind of is saying, shifting, shifting our view, turning, turning our perspective a little bit. So this is the traditional order of the path that we begin with an understanding of how do we need to shift our view? How do we need to shift our perspective to begin to um, move in the direction of a deeper kind of happiness? Not just the happiness of getting what we want, but a kind of a happiness of um, being able to meet things with a balance of mind. A kind of a, 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 a an equanimous mind, a balanced mind, a non-reactive mind, that there's a happiness that can come from being non-reactive. Not that that non-reactive means non-action. It means not fighting with. So there's a, the, the Buddha is pointing to this deeper kind of happiness that can come from non-reactivity. So he's, he's pointing us, it's like, okay, we need to start by shifting our orientation, shifting our view. And from that follows the intention to act on, if the view makes sense to us, if this shift of perspective makes sense to us, then we may choose to act, choose to um, follow through on that. So the view gives rise to some kinds of intentions and choices, which follows on um, with ways that we behave and ways that we cultivate our mind. So these are the, the different aspects of the Eightfold Path. We start with a kind of a direction that sets our intention, and then we engage in behaviors that are more helpful for us, more skillful for us. This is the, um, the middle three aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And then we also are interested and inclined towards um, seeing 
and understanding how the uh, patterns in our mind contribute to our suffering, how our habits of mind contribute to our struggles. And that's um, worked with, with the last three aspects of the Eightfold Path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So this is the traditional order um, that we explore the Eightfold Path in. But it's not the only um, description of the path in the Buddhist teachings. He also described the path as beginning with a cultivation of, of ethical conduct, of starting from a place of kind of getting our um, relationships with the world in order. That if, um, if we're, we're engaging in ways that create harm and cause suffering for others, we're not serving ourselves very well. That, you know, if we're engaging in actions and speech and livelihood that create harm and suffering in the world, then that will rebound on our minds and cause us internal struggle and suffering as well. So that this, this is another place that the practice begins. That first begin by kind of getting the orientation of our relationships in order, moving towards a direction of non-harming. And then fo- that followed by the cultivation of the mind to begin, again, to kind of see what the patterns of our mind are that might lead us into acting in ways that aren't supportive. So this, uh, this description of the path begins with, with ethical conduct and then follows on mental cultivation and then ends with wisdom, ends with an understanding. So this is an interesting kind of flipping, in a way, of the ordering of what the, the traditional order of the Eightfold Path is. Traditional order begins with some kind of wisdom and then follows on through or some kind of understanding, follows that on by the behavior, the way that we engage, and then cultivating how can we meet and understand our patterns of mind. This other path begins with ethical conduct, sort of begins in the middle of the Eightfold Path, then moves on to mental cultivation and ends with an understanding that comes out of how we've, we've acted, how we've cultivated our minds. And so it's said that the, um, this is called what's called the gradual training. The Buddha talked about the um, beginning with ethical conduct and cultivating our minds and then moving in, into the understanding is what's called the gradual training. And it is said that the, um, the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path wise understanding and wise intention, are this wisdom that comes at the end of the path with this gradual training. So how do we understand that? That basically in one formation of the path of practice, wisdom begins, is where we begin. This understanding is where we begin. In another formulation of this path, wisdom is where we end. So... I'll just leave that for just a moment and um, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But what I want to do right now is kind of highlight this notion of views. Um, it's just like this, this um, framing of this first 
uh, aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise view, I want to kind of just look at the view part and look at the importance of views in our life and the importance of views in how we, um, how we live. That we, we all live with a certain set of views that may or may not be terribly conscious to us. So, um, you know, this is actually a, an important exploration for us. What are, what are the kind of views that we, that we live with? What, what is um, important to us? And how do we... Sort of like, what are our hidden beliefs in the way that we live our life that uh, defines what's important to us? So one, I, I want to actually kind of open it up, but I'll put one out there as a, as a seed, which I just mentioned, and that is the view that having what I want will make me happy. That we, you know, that, that's a kind of a common view that most of us share. Um, it's very cultural, especially in this culture. We get this message a lot um, on in commercials, and I even saw one one uh, ad from Longs or something, and it said, "Satisfy your cravings." Right on top of the right on top of the page, it's like, yeah, you know, and it showed pictures of M and M's and Cheez Its and things like this. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that'll do it for me. That'll make me happy. <laughs> so. This this notion that having what I want will make me happy is kind of ingrained in us. And if it's not seen or uh, recognized as a view that we're operating with, it kind of makes our choices for us. We all operate with um, certain beliefs, and these beliefs are often not in the conscious mind. And when they're not in the conscious mind, it's like those beliefs are making our decisions for us. If those beliefs can come into our consciousness, then we have some choice about, well, do I follow through on that or not? So making our views conscious, I think, is a piece of what the Buddha is pointing to in this first aspect of the Eightfold Path. He's he's actually pointing us to, this is a view that will help you there's a couple of pieces to it that I'll go into in a moment. And, you know, to begin to, uh, to recognize what the views are that we're living under. What are the views that we're living with? I'll read one thing from um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who says this so well. Our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value. So this is, you know, what we think of as what what is valuable for us. Um, Have a bearing, our perspective on the crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that go beyond mere theoretical convictions. They govern our, our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. Whether or not they're clearly formulated in our minds, they structure our perceptions, order our values, and crystallize the framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of the world. Then these views condition action. They lie behind our choices and goals and our effort to turn these goals from ideals into actuality. So, I mean, this is... um, 
this is not a small thing to begin to become aware of what is kind of orienting us. What, what is directing our choices? What are the values that we are holding that direct our choices? What are some of the ones that, um, that you have for yourselves? Just if you can think of any beginning to make them kind of conscious. Yes. The pursuit, so, so, so the, um, so, so the, um, the notion that pursuing happiness is, is a goal. I never accepted that exactly. Uh-huh. I probably, I don't know why, it always was puzzling to me. So yeah, this is like, what is it, in the framing of our constitution, we accept as self-evident that, um, all men are created equal, and the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is something like that. <laughs> we should know this. <laughs> so, so, um, so this view that happiness is a goal—you um, say that you've not accepted it. So, so I think, I think um, you know, the, uh, the Buddha wouldn't necessarily object that a goal of happiness is a good one. But I think what is the piece that's missing there is that where we think happiness comes from, the, you know, the, um, the assumption of where happiness comes from, we see is so hollow. You know, having... Material possessions is happiness. We quickly see, well, that's not, you know, the, this, the pursuit of happiness. Of, we, we take that to be the pursuit of what I want. That's what we think of as the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of what I want. The Buddha turns it around completely. He says, the pursuit of happiness is letting go of what you want. Or letting go of the wanting, I'll say. Not letting go of what you want. The letting go of the wanting. Why don't we use the mic? Uh, yeah. well, one, one comment, I think the Constitution was talking about political freedom to pursue happiness, which is a different from the recommending pursuing, yes. the pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this is true, yes. <clears throat> Beyond that, um, <clears throat> I wish I were, you know, I wish I were someone who craved chocolates and, and things like that. I tend to crave much more expensive toys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the other and what underlies that craving? Do you have a sense of what it is? Yes. That, what is that? Um, it it seems to um, be a way of compensating for for a deeper feeling of inadequacy. Okay, so this points to uh, a deeper kind of view of. 
needing to feel adequate. And so there's a deeper kind of view there. It's not so much, when we start looking at that, it's not so much about the having the things that's important, it's the feeling of adequacy that becomes important. And so this is kind of the, the exploration. So, you know, in, in the practice, actually, what we can do is start to uncover some of these views. So what, what is it that I think is going to make me happy? F- a feeling of adequacy. Okay. What does a feeling of inadequacy feel like? And, you know, what is, what, what is this idea of adequacy anyway? Um, you know, so th- th- that's, a, that's an interesting piece then. So that's a, that's a good pointing. I imagine there's quite mm-hmm. a few people in the room who have that sense of... <laughs> uh, in order to be, to be happy, I need to feel adequate in some way. And what does that adequate come from? I mean, does it come... Does it, is it an internal... Again, I think we could, we could look at this a sense of adequacy as not necessarily being uh, an unwholesome wish, but the way that we go about it Maybe acquiring things so that other people think we're adequate, or that our view of ourselves from our parents' perspective, you know, an internal idea, well, you know, if I have all these things, my parents can be proud of me, or, you know, something along those lines. So, where does this sense of adequacy and inadequacy come from? It's actually internal. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is very, I mean, the, the very notion of inadequacy in me is something I've constructed. Yes, uh, yes. I can trace a few elements to my parents, but, uh, but so, I've, ma- I've maintained it a lot longer than they wasted <laughs> it on me. <laughs> we do that. <laughs> so, so, you know, the exploration around this, I mean, the... The view that the Buddha points us to is, okay, so not necessarily that we have to kind of, you know, say that, chuck that idea of adequacy, but is there a different perspective on adequacy? A perspective that... um, um, comes from... you know, from inside that the adequacy doesn't need to be granted from outside but that one feels just internally okay so you know that's that's an exploration around that so to begin to uncover our views about what is it that we think is going to make us happy and, and begin to see that the way that we're engaging in them I mean, I think what we'll find as we go through the various views that people hold is that they're not, it's not like we want to necessarily say, yeah, chuck the whole thing, like the notion of of wanting to be happy. We don't have to chuck that whole thing, but look at how we're engaging in that. So that's, I think that was the adequacy one is. Any others? um... So um, a big one for me is as a woman in a society that has a certain idea of what external beauty is, and as I age and become different physically than I was before, sort of what's my view of myself now? And I find that I'm, I'm pretty good at staying within my own feelings of who I am 
and Buddhism helps with sort of not having this perspective of how I look, but more how I am in the world. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, someone will say something, and I'm not even thinking about it. Like, I'm around a lot of younger women because I'm a, a mom of young children. So someone will say, oh, I like you because you're wise and older than most of these other people. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just go, oh, I wasn't even, hadn't, no, hadn't even thought that I was perceived that way, you know? So uh, uh, anyway, so that really, it's a sort of a viewpoint of myself that I struggle with, that view of being different than I was at one point and how, uh-huh. how I am in the world compared to the people in contrast to the people I am around and so forth. Uh, so, so yeah. is the where is the the hook around the happiness? So the happiness part. Uh, the happiness part is probably that it comes from within, and that I I I don't really care anymore about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more. It is what it is, and it beats the alternative. And so, what if I have these smile lines? You know, uh-huh. that's kind of that's how I I look at it. Uh huh. So, so that sounds like a, a a reframing. You know, that that's that's more in line with wise view. That yes, it is more internal. You know, it's 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 not trying to make yourself be something else or try to make yourself be something that other people would have a certain perspective on. I think that's another, another um, way that we go for happiness is trying to become someone that other people will respect, admire, whatever. Um, and that, uh, that view of needing to have that from other people, you know, yeah. that, that happiness comes from getting that from other people is basically putting our happiness on the opinions of other people people you know, it's like how, how reliable is that <laughs> so this the, the, the turning around of it is the the reali- the recognition of the the wanting the approval the wanting the recognition the wanting the admiration and can we just not uh, or notice that wanting as kind of the source of any struggle there and and as you're doing more letting go of I'm sufficient. This is fine. It's fine the way it is. So that's the beginning of that reframing. It's constant work to to do that. It's really really hard. So when you notice that the that you're kind of pulled, so this is where kind of making these views conscious is helpful because then we can begin to see, oh, I'm kind of wanting, you know, wanting somebody to approve of me here. Yeah, exactly, cuz um along those same lines yesterday I was feeling sort of down in the dumps in the morning and and something had happened at home with one of the kids or whatever. And someone came up to me and said, oh, I overheard this conversation where someone was telling a story about you and he said that you were his guardian angel and he was being really dramatic. And then the head of school who was right there said she's everyone's guardian angel. And they were just talking in such a nice way and and it made me feel better. And I thought, well, that shouldn't make me feel better. (laughs) But it did. And so I just realized that I'm just like, uh, I have a lot of work to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, I mean, some of these views do operate kind of under the surface. I mean, it's like, yeah. 
you know, when we get that kind of praise, it's kind of hard not to feel kind of puffed up around it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> no, exactly. And then you know that I know that I haven't really. Yes, let go. You haven't go. let go of that sense of needing it. Yes. In a way, yeah. I, I it's not that it's bad to be praised. No. But but the Buddha. I mean, the Buddha himself actually. Um, people praised him. People said he was crazy and wanted to kill him and you know so even the Buddha had people on both sides and and he said you know if you're going to live your life by wanting praise and not having blame it's not going to be a happy life for you because we can't control those outer circumstances yeah so this is again this is kind of the reframing so yeah Mary well now I have a new goal (laughs) and I know my goals are hindrances I really see goal orientation which has been my whole life um, are hindrances and so um, I want what you said today or what I heard you say I don't always hear correctly (laughs) so what did you hear? (laughs) Uh, is uh, to be able to meet things as they are uh huh and not uh, always want them to be different. Um, but my view of things as they are is skewed. And so that, yes. that's where I need to start. What's yes. my perception of myself and my relationship with others? And that's where a lot of the view comes in. I mean, it's, it's skewed in ways that we're not aware of. You know, the, the Buddha actually talked about some fundamental ways that our perceptions are skewed. And the, the three main ways are that we take things that are impermanent to be permanent. And, you know, this, this is kind of insidious. You know, we, we, we know consciously, yes, things are impermanent, but we don't behave that way. You know, it's, it's like... Um, and it's kind, of, it's kind of surprising when we see... Um, you know, how, I mean, basically, if we really saw that something was impermanent and that it was bound to go away and change, we wouldn't really, we wouldn't hold on to it as being a place to be happy. So, I mean, that, that, that perspective shift. But it's a, it's a huge, um, again, this is, these are common. This is a common perspective that we, we tend to take things that are impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take things that are, um, not reliable, not not satisfactory as a source of happiness as being a satisfactory source of happiness. This is the good as as good as it gets phenomenon. You know, yeah, yeah that, that makes me happy for a few moments, <laughs> and then we take things to be um, uh, self that are not self. So those are the kind of fundamental uh, misperceptions around which are, a lot of our views are founded. So can you name some of the skewed views that you um, well, find in your own... Permanence is uh, really difficult um, because it's particularly with my adult children I've seen them patterns that don't leave, they don't change my, at least according <clears throat> to my perception and um, I've let go big hunks of their of my uh, criteria for what's good and healthy, big chunks, uh-huh. but still, um, 
and my with myself. I, I, I'm uh, hanging on to some patterns that uh, haven't changed. They're not impermanent. They're still the self-centeredness is still big, live, and well, and thriving in me. <laughs> And I still find myself surprised that I could be so self-centered. Because how could I be? See, there's all... (laughs) It's just endless. It's just endless. It it feels endless. (laughs) It does feel endless. And, you know, the... the, um, the turning towards the feeling of that self-centeredness, I mean, when we actually start to, to, to watch it, you know, or whatever pattern feels like, yeah, that's really me, that's permanent, you know, one of the ways to begin to, to, to see through that is to recognize that there are times when that's not operating. You know, so... Maybe even small moments, maybe small moments, but there are times when it's not happening. And the more you can actually recognize, I mean, this is a big one around patterns, especially ones that are, are strong. You know, if you see that uh, a pattern is, um, you know, this one you really identify with, yep, that's me. Well, who are you when it's not operating? So that the, it begins to undercut the, the sense of permanence when you see that it's not always there. And it's not always there. It is not. It just, it, it, seem, it seems like, I mean, the, the, the delusion or the, the incorrect view around permanence, it's kind of like, um, you know, things are... It's like we have this orientation. For something like that, we have an orientation where, um, yep, that's me. So um, for me, one of my my favorite ones was I'm miserable. I'm a miserable person. And yep, you know, every time I was miserable, it sure confirmed that. And you know, the times I wasn't miserable, I didn't take it in as being, oh, not miserable, that's interesting. (laughs) It was more like, well, yeah, I'm 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 happy now, but you know, I really know that what I am is not is miserable. <laughs> so I would dismiss and really not take in the fact that I was actually happy. You know, it's kind of like it was I was dismissive of the absence of that pattern because I had such a strong belief view in that pattern. So this for me was a strong view, it was like the belief view that I'm a miserable person. You know, I'm always miserable. That's just the way I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be miserable most of the time. And, you know, um, so when we can start taking in the fact that we're not always miserable and, and not be just dismissive of it, it can begin to poke holes in that identity, that belief, that view I can see that um, it's like saying I'm self-centered instead of saying, like last week was mentioned, anger is just present. Yes. My self-centeredness. Self-centeredness, self-centeredness. Even just self-centeredness is arising. Or or even being a little more clear about what that is. It's like wanting this to happen right now. Um, Because self-centeredness is a pretty big... 
it, it encompasses a lot. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of different patterns that are kind of lumped under that heading. And so to, to, to kind of begin to tease even those apart. And it's like, yeah, oh yeah, okay. You know, so self-righteousness is arising. That's probably a flavor of self-centeredness. You know, self-righteousness, I'm right. Self-righteousness is arising right now. Self-righteousness is happening right now. Yeah, so not even my self-righteousness is happening right now. It's just, oh, that pattern is coming up right now. Yeah. yeah. Anything, any other? Yeah, Arthur. The belief, um, the view that uh, I'm in control of externals, internals, and actually as you were speaking just now, that kind of comes under this self-centered view. It does, in a way, yeah. I mean, and this is a big one, too, for all of us, I think, this, um, this belief that I need to be in control to be happy, and um, I need to be in control to be me, or, you know, it's, it's like, it's really pervasive. It's like, if I don't feel like I'm in control, I'm a failure. Um, so, yeah, so this notion of needing to be in control, or the sense that that need that having control will make me happy it's it's not so much the having of things but the being able to shape the world that sense of control that's a big one for us in terms of um happiness and um yeah that that one uh, 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 even a short, you know, investigation into what we actually have control of. <laughs> you know, it reveals we have limited, you know, kinds of... I mean, like, I can choose... Okay, yep, I can, I'm going to lift my arm right now. Okay, yeah, I've got that control, you know. I think it comes from something that simple in a way, you know, that we can... We can direct our bodies. We can choose to do this or that with our bodies. At this moment, I can choose to do this or that with my body. You know, if I broke my arm, I, <laughs> I couldn't choose to do that. So, um, you know, the the notion of control uh, comes, I think, from this very basic sense of action. You know, that there is an intention. And we can follow through on intentions. You know that that there's a choice. There's there are choices, and there are you know things that we can choose. And there's a sense, in a sense, what happens there is that we get identified with being the one who can choose, and then assign to that 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 has to be. I have to be able to choose the way I want to in order to be happy. So there are choices that happen. You know, choices happen. Conditions come into being and we make choices. I choose to lift my arm. But these choices themselves are conditioned. The choices themselves come out of our history, our what's happening in the moment. So it's not so much that there is someone controlling or choosing as that choices are happening. 
And this again, this is the reframing that the Buddha makes around white, right view. That, um, you know, it's not that like there's absolutely no control, but it's not control in the way that we think of it. There's, you know, that there's no um, entity kind of sitting back and guiding things. It's much more of a process. Much more of a process, this, these choices of how we, how we decide to do what we do. And the, um, the notion of control really begins to meet its match when we come in contact with the world. <laughs> There's lots of things happening out there that, you know, that this is one of the aspects of um, causes and conditions. You know, there's lots of things happening out there that we have absolutely no control over. And, you know, the, the illusion that um, we have some control, it's like we're, we're really taking a very narrow view of the world when we think we have control. So, you know, broadening our perspective on the world, we see... There's very little control. So that's a big one, that notion of being happy if I am in control. And the, you know, and the, the fear that comes in when there's the sense of no control, um, the sense of insecurity, instability, vulnerability, all of that is 